I think that uh, I, just looking back over the past 10 years, uh, and really I'm a half-cup-full half kind of guy anyway, but I really think I'm looking at the past 10 years of my life, and I'm, th I'm thinking they may be the best 10 years of my life. Now, I'm not exactly... I've only lived four decades, all right? So I, haven't, I don't have a, exactly a, a long track record here, but I think that as I look back over the past years of my life, that the, the past 10 years have been the best. But I will definitely say this, that the past 10 years have been the best of my 22 years in ministry. That absolutely pastoring Grace Point Church has, has been an exciting journey, has been a challenging journey, has been an, an amazing ride all along. If you think back 10 years ago, in July of 01, we began meeting as just a small group of people in a home that went to a conference room, that went to a, an elementary school, and just kind of continued that little journey for about three months before we really even launched the church. It was just kind of come if you hear about us. And we really, it wasn't until October 7th that we launched the church. Up until then, I think our high attendance Sunday may have been the Sunday after 9-11 at about 35 people. And uh, that was just kind of that getting ready, get set. We're going to take off here and we're going to see where this is going. And I'm excited about the past 10 years as I look back and the success of that but the, the thing that I'm worried about is the next 10 years. Now, I don't think that you need to worry and be anxious about tomorrow. The Bible gives stern warnings on that. But I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that, that just maybe the next 10 years won't be as good as the first 10 years. That, that maybe we won't have the same level of intensity, the same faith, the same resolve, the same surrender that the first decade families had when we were starting with nothing and you can't fall off the ground floor, so let's just try it. And we weren't afraid to fail, and so we just did it. And, and I didn't know what it meant to start a church in America. None of us had ever started a church in America, and so here we go. We're just going to try it. And here we are today, and I, I can clearly say that it's been successful. Successful if you measure it by people and by impact. People's lives have been changed. New believers have come to faith. Those who have been far from the faith have come back to the faith. We've impacted villages that don't even have the gospel, uh, that didn't have the gospel, didn't have a believer in it. We've been able to be on mission around the world. It, it's been really exciting to think of the first 10 years. But guess what? You're a part of the next 10 years. And let's just go back and let's just imagine the, the intensity and the faith and the and the the surrender and the resolve that we had to have in the beginning. I wonder, do you, do I have that same intensity of faith, surrender and resolve for this next decade? Do we have what it takes? Because I'll tell you right now, statistics are not on our side. And you know, if you've been around any length of time, I like to quote from statistics, but statistics are not on our side. Every study that I've ever read that most churches have their best years between birth and 12 to 15 years of age. Their best years, their best growth, their best impact, their best creativity, their best work is done in the first years. And what happens then in that 12 to 15 year range is they kind of get to where, you know what? 
I don't have to work as hard. I don't have to pray as much. I don't have to sacrifice and give as much. You know, there's a lot of other people that can help out. And now I can just kind of sit back. And whenever you have that mentality, because it's a lot easier always to sit back than it is to move forward. You can easily, we could easily have lived our best years. And that would be, a, for me, a horrible thing to happen. Here's a warning for us all that yesterday's success, they do not guarantee tomorrow's victories, tomorrow's wins, tomorrow's success. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. Just because you were successful in the first 10 years or the first, uh, you know, whatever, take your career, take your marriage, that just because it went well for the first half doesn't mean it will go well in the second half. Jim Collins in his book, How the Mighty Fall, it was, it's kind of been one of my summer reads for this, this, this summer and I've enjoyed and been disturbed by it because what it is is he's gone back and if you know Jim Collins, he's done some great research, deep research into powerful, big, huge companies. His first great bestseller was Built to Last. His second was Good to Great. And he studied com- companies that had really done well. And he said, this, this country, this company, they have been, they built themselves, obviously built to last. They, they did things well in the beginning that have, will help them all the way to the end. And then, and then what he did in Good to Great is he talked about the companies that were good and they were good at being good, but they actually made steps and they made progress and they made changes to go from good to great. In his latest book, he comes out and he talks about how the mighty fall. And he went back through that same empirical data And he went back and studied some of the same companies that had gone from good to great. And some of them have gone back from being great to good. And some of those that went back from being great to good have even gone to bad. And all this book is about how mighty companies fall. And one of the very first things that happens, the very first stage in failure of a company, is what he calls hubris-born success. Uberus-born success, it's whenever a company or an organization is very successful. It becomes very powerful. Look out, Walmart, all right? Let me just tell all of you Walmartians out there, look out. You may be king of the hill today, but so was Kmart. This uberus-born success talks about the fact that there are companies who become very mighty, very strong, very powerful, very influential very something, making a huge impact. And because of their success, it goes to their head and they think that they are now impenetrable. That success is almost an entitlement. That everybody expects the bonuses that they got during the good years and the stock to be what it was in the good years. And so they never think, and so they've had such great success, and all of a sudden they kind of come inside themselves. Creativity goes, or all the other elements that got them there goes, and they end up failing. But I thought it was very interesting that it wasn't complacency that drove them there. It was their sense of entitlement that we are a successful organization. And I think about Grace Point Church And I can look at Grace Point Church across the land, and I can look at Grace Point Church across northwest Arkansas, and I can say we have been successful at leading life change into homes, into families, into nations in the first decade. My question, will we be ready for the second decade? 
Or will we suffer from being the mighty who fall? Even Paul warned us about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He says, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. Just when you think you've got sure-footedness, just when you think you've got momentum, just when you think you're successful, just when you think you can't fall, be careful because you're about to faceplant yourself. Success makes you vulnerable for failure. Success makes you vulnerable for failure. It doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't guarantee tomorrow's victory. You can truly be successful as a church, as a family, as an institution, as a nonprofit, as a corporation, and you can fall flat on your face tomorrow because you are now vulnerable. Let me tell you about a nation. The nation of Israel. Take your Bibles. Be finding the book of 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll be there in a moment. But as you find it, let me give you the context. Let me tell you about the number one superpower of the day. You check all ancient history and they will tell you during this period of time, the superpower of nations, as far as we know from ancient history and from the literature of ancient history, the superpower of this day was the nation of Israel. Wasn't always the case. Egypt had its day. Assyria had its day. Babylon had its day. Greece had, uh, Greek, the Greeks in the Roman culture had its day. But during this time in which we're looking at today in 1 Kings chapter 11, we're looking at the most powerful nation known to man. And this powerful nation is led by a young man named Solomon. Solomon is the son of King David. And if you talk to the nation of Israel today and you were to ask any Israel, any Jew, who is the greatest king that the Jewish nation has ever had from the beginning of time to the present, year to date, they will tell you King David. Absolutely the best of the best of the best. Right behind King David is his son Solomon. And Solomon literally comes to the throne riding the crest of the wave of dad. Talk about nepotism. Talk about this is a good position to get into. Talk about being heir to a bunch of influence and power and wealth. This is Solomon. And if we know David, David was a man after God's own heart. Did he fall? Did he mess up? Absolutely. He was human. But David worked, plowed, fought, scratched, clawed for success as a king, and he became the mightiest, greatest king the nation Israel ever knew and brought it to its superpower status. Solomon, all he had to do was to step into dad's big sandals and to continue the march forward, and that he did. In fact, what David did, it was because of some situations in David's life, he was forbidden from building the temple. But what David did is he made sure all the resources, all the manpower, everything was there and in place so that when Solomon stepped into his throne, Solomon could start building the temple. The temple was humongous. It was, it was absolutely the biggest dream of David's heart. David was a worshiper. David was a man after God's own heart. David was the man who wrote the greatest book on worship the book of Psalms that we have. He wanted to see a beautiful temple for his God. And a beautiful temple is what it was. It was a beautiful, costly temple. It was, it was, it was something that Solomon stepped into and for the first 20 years of his life, he spends building this temple. 
this beautiful, magnificent place of worship. And you would think, after 20 years of having a very good run, he reigned for 40 years, after 20 years of having a very good run, that Solomon, following in his father's footsteps, would have known that this is what success takes and means, and I'm going to stay on this path. And he knew what success was, that was for sure. And he could have gone further and he could have soared higher and he could have influenced more than even his father. He had a legacy. Let me tell you a little bit about Solomon's legacy. And some of it you might know, but Solomon's legacy, part of it was worship. Because of the building of the temple. Part of his legacy, what he's known for is, is, is worship. And what he poured into, the, into, into this place, into this, into this temple, it was a powerful part of the picture of the equation. Do you realize how much this temple cost? Somebody who's far smarter than I did took all of the elements of the temple, spent a lot of time doing this, mathematically computed it all out, what it cost to build the, temp- to build the temple in that day, and then transferred it into dollars, translated it into dollars. It cost $400 million to build the temple if you were to build it today in U.S. dollars. Makes our potential $8 million expansion look like pocket change. All right? $400 million to a place of worship, dedicated to a, a, as a place of worship. He was known for worship. He was also known for his wisdom. He was a very wise king. If you know that three of the Old Testament books that we hold in our hands when we pick up this book, three of them, largely in the wisdom literature, was written by Solomon. Solomon wrote these books. He, he, he wrote the Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote uh, uh, the Song of Solomon. But you find here in, in, in the first kings that kings were coming to him. In kings, first Kings chapter 3, other kings from other nations would come to Solomon and sit at his feet to get his wisdom. He was a very wise king the wisest king who's ever lived. That's what he's known for. That's a part of his legacy that he lived and left with the people. He's probably the second most documented king of Israel. That's the influence that he had. That's the wisdom that he had. Solomon is known for his wisdom. He's known for the worship. He's also known for wealth. He was a very wealthy king. A very wealthy king. If you understand his wealth, you understand that uh, I can't even put my arms around this amount of money. Let me tell you about one gift that he received from the Queen of Sheba. One gift from the Queen of Sheba. Listen to this. The Queen of Sheba, who fell in love with him, infatuated with him, was even where we get our word breathtaking. It's actually used to describe what the Queen of Sheba thought of Solomon. She brought him a gift one day of four and a half tons of gold. That was one gift one day from the Queen of Sheba. Now I thought, now how much is that worth today? So if I did my math right, I got online and I found out how much an ounce of gold is. And then I found out how many ounces are in a ton. And this is kind of what I've computed out. There, each ounce of gold on the day that I computed this was one, is worth $1,757 for an ounce of gold. In how many then ounces are in a ton? There are 32,000 ounces in a ton. 
there are 4.5 tons of this gold. You can compute it out at $252 million, $252,864,000 in a one-day gift from the Queen of Sheba. He was stinking wealthy. All right, now that's one day. That's not even including what he got annually from the Arabian kings that surrounded him. He received 25 tons of gold from them annually. And that's not even including the taxation that he would put on the people of Israel. So you, you see a man who is extremely wealthy, has this great legacy of a father in David, picks up right where his father leaves off for the first 20 years of his life. This is just the first 20 years that this guy is a gazillionaire. And here he is living out the, the life of a king in the superpower nation of Israel. It couldn't be any better. You can't topple superpowers, can you? Especially when there's a monarchy and you're number uno. There's no way that Solomon's going to fall, right? Wrong. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Is how do mighty people, mighty marriages, strong families, strong individuals, Strong corporations, strong churches, great successful churches. How did they fall? Because not only was Solomon known for his worship and his wealth and his wisdom, he's also known for his women. And it would be his women that would be his Achilles heel. If you take your Bibles, you got First Kings open there to chapter 11. I want us to begin reading. And in eight verses, we see the fall of a king it really nullifies, listen to this, it nullifies the previous ten chapters of his, of his monarchy. And what you see at the end of Solomon's life, listen, up, listen very carefully, because what does a fall of a king, of a superpower, of a wealthy king, of a wise king, of a, of a king who's heir to David, the greatest king Israel ever knew to this day? How does, what does a fall look like? Let me tell you, when Solomon fell at the end of Solomon's life, he went up like a rocket, but he came down like a rock. When he fell, there was, when he died, there was idol worship. There was idolatry throughout the land. There was moral decay. Immorality was rampant. Israel was divided into Judah and Israel. Literally, the nation splits in half for hundreds of years that would ultimately weaken the nation and cause them to fall into exile of Babylon and ultimately Assyria. Now, folks, I want you to look up here really carefully, really quickly. Because I don't know where you're at, and I don't know how successful you are, and I don't know how good your marriage is, and I don't, if you're not a part of Grace, I don't know how good your church is, but there is nothing keeping us from the second decade being worse than we could even imagine. Or the second half of your marriage being an absolute disaster. Now, I'm not trying to scare you, and I'm not trying to say the cup's half full. I'm just trying to be in the middle of the road and throw up my hands and say, hey, warning, this can change. Follow along as I begin reading in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign 
women. Now, some people like blondes. Some people like brunettes. Some people like tall. Some people like short. Some people like educated. Some people like simpletons. However you like your women, men, Solomon liked his foreign, all right? He liked his foreign women. He loved many foreign women. Along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, the Hitt and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. A concubine was basically uh, a second-rate wife, had all the responsibilities, all of the pleasure providing necess necessities of a regular wife, but not the great grandeur of being a princess. He had 1,000 women at his disposal. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. What a comparison. What a sad legacy to leave. For Solomon went after Asherah, which is interesting. That was a goddess of fertility. So not only did he have 1,000 wives, but he was so obsessed and enamored with sexuality that he even pursued it in the Asherah, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Again, comparing David to the father, David to Solomon, excuse me. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and the Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, in the mountain east of Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. We see, and again, eight verses, the fall of a mighty king. What can we learn from his life? That should be a warning sign for our life, for our marriage, for our companies, for our church, to make sure that we don't start well but end sorry and sad. Jot these down. This is four ways the mighty fall, and you need to take good notes today. Because I don't care, again, how good it is today. It can be a train wreck tomorrow. Number one is when we ignore directional signs. When we ignore directional signs, God has been putting out directional signs since Adam and Eve. And even in a perfect garden, He gave directional. He's God. He can do that. When you're God and you sit on the throne, you can say, this is good, this is bad, this is hot, this is cold, don't do this, do this. When you're God, you can do that. Now, I've heard a lot of people say they don't like Christianity. Because of the directional signs, God says stop, God says go, God says turn right, God says turn left, God says slow down, God says yield. All these kinds of things, these road signs that are out there that He gives us in His Word. And I've heard people say, I don't want to follow Christ because of the do's and the don'ts of the Christian faith. 
And I can understand we don't want to be told, I'm a grown man, I'm a grown woman, I don't want to have to be told what I can do and what I cannot do. Well, you choose your own road then. But I want to warn you that that's a road that leads to destruction. The best thing you can do is figure out the path that God is leading you on, get on it and stay on it. There's one other sign that's out there. It's it's that merge sign. You know, it's that straight arrow up and down. You're coming onto an an on-ramp, and that on-ramp is there, and it's telling you. What's it telling you? It said, get ready. There's cars coming to merge with you. And I I think God has given us merge signs out there for marriage. Be careful. You are getting with another you, and you are going to become one. Or supposed to. That's the design of marriage and God's cosmic plan of it all. And He gives us good directional signs out there. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3 says, You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not intermarry. Who's them? Them them are the followers of Yahweh God. Don't intermarry with them. Giving their daughters and their sons to taking their daughters for, for your sons. Look at verse 1, what he said in this chapter that we just read, 1 Kings. Because Moses said that 400 years. Solomon knew what God had said through Moses. 400 years prior to that. Now notice what it says in verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters. Of the go, on, go on down. Um, yeah, he loved many foreign women. And this is what he shouldn't have done. The Moabites and the, and the Egyptian ladies and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Hittites. These are those people who are not followers of God. And God has told them to stay where, uh, beware of them. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, He even told kings, kings, don't have many wives. You don't need to have many wives. And you notice in verse 3 how many wives He had. Hubris born success. When you're a king and you have God's word in front of you, or you're CEO, or you're the boss, or you're the king of your own castle, and you found yourself successful, and maybe everything you touch turns to money, and everything's going good for you, you know what the temptation is in your life, in my life? You know what? I can, I can fudge a little bit. I can move this around. I can have this little relationship over there. What we start doing is we start ignoring those directional signs of God. We better be very careful. Because they're put there for a reason. To save us from absolute utter disaster. I remember my first speeding ticket. I was 16. Driving my flaming red Escort. Ford Escort that is. All right. I can remember I was late, going to miss my curfew. I turned the corner in downtown Rogers. I looked straight down the street. It was late. I don't remember what time it was. But I looked down the street. It was clear. All I could see was street lights. And so I put the pedal to the metal of a Ford Escort, that is. And I took off in this 35-mile-an-hour zone. I sped up. And about the time I got in front of Lucy's Diner, if you know where Lucy's Diner is in downtown Rogers, all of a sudden, this person who talks, the next person I talked to said, I clocked you at, all right, 65 in a 35. Now, at that point, if that, the operative word there is clocked, you know who I'm talking to at this point. Because he finally caught up with me about 
at that time, the Rogers Walmart store, and pulls me over and writes me a very nice ticket, a very nice high-speed award for the night, you might say. And at that point, I had a new appreciation for directional signs. Bernie Madoff has a new appreciation for directional signs despite his $50 billion Ponzi scheme. Warren Jeff has a new appreciation for directional signs. I don't care if you're a deity in people's eyes. God has directional signs and you better look for them and you better obey them because the alternative is not a sweet envy. Number two, it goes on because he ignores the directional sign and it leads to what's called emotional attachments. He not only loves, not only does he want foreign women, not only does he have a proclivity towards foreign women, but when you read on and you find out in verse 2, it says that, uh, let me see, in, in, in verse 2 it says that, uh, and from the nations concerning uh, the Lord, uh, um, of the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage, and they with you surely you will turn away your hearts. And Solomon clung, clung to these women in love. I don't care if it's money. I don't care if it's women. I don't care if it's, if it's fame or fortune. I don't care if it's the desires or if it's sensational pleasures. I can tell you this in my own personal life, that the greatest detours of my life is where is when I've allowed myself to become emotionally attached to something other than God. And when that happens, what suddenly happens is now I've allowed a wedge, I've allowed a, a crack, a crevice, whatever you want to call it, I've allowed room for Satan to now come into my heart and to come and to influence me because he doesn't need all of our life. He only needs a little of our life. And when he has a little of our life, he gets all of our life. And he took this little, he takes these little crevices, and I can tell you right now, the greatest falls of my life have been when I was emotionally attached to something other than God. And you don't know how emotionally attached you are to that something out there, or that someone out there, or that position out there, until you no longer have it. Because we can all sit in this room and say, well, I'm not emotionally attached to anything. I love God and Jesus and my family. But what about the boat? What about that car? Would you be willing to give that car up today? Oh, yeah, I can say. It's like the person who says, I can quit smoking any day as they light up another cigarette. They're emotionally attached to it. They're all in. They bought into it. They're clinging to it. These weren't just contractual relationships that Solomon had with these women. They were marriages deep down in his heart. I had a friend of mine, good friend of mine, came to, came to Lori and I at one point and said that he was making a career change, was in a totally different career field, was making a career change, no, excuse me, not a career change, a job change inside his own career. And he started talking about how this was a great career change and how he needed to make this change to make this change to go up this ladder. Da, 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 da. And he had it all mapped out. And man, there was something inside my heart. There was something inside Lori's heart. There was even something inside the wife's heart that said, this isn't right. Are you sure? No, we prayed about it. We asked God to open doors and close doors. I hate that phrase. 
And, and they literally jumped, made the move. And I can tell you now, because to this day, though, we're separated by miles and years. I can tell you to this day, we're still close friends. For three years of hell, they lived in that decision. Because they went based on their emotional attachment to his career. And not because God called them. They finally got out of that situation and made another move and are back in a better situation, but not without cost to family, nearly costing their marriage, costing them financially, costing, 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 before finally they said, okay, God, beware of your emotional attachments. Number three, divided loyalties to God. Notice in verse three, it says that the wives turned his heart away from God's, to to their God's. Verse 3, the wives, these are the ones, his Achilles heel, these are the ones. I'm not saying women are bad and they're going to lead you astray. Men can be bad and they can lead you astray. Any relationship can throw you off course. You better make sure you've listened to, watch the directional signs. You better make sure you're not emotionally attached in there. Because what happens, it begins to divide your loyalties. Notice what it said in Deuteronomy 17, 17. Why shouldn't they marry these foreign women? lest his heart be turned away. See, your heart begins to become divided, begins to become wishy-washy, begins to be duplicitous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, Satan does not fill us with hatred for God, but forgetfulness of God. Solomon would have not told you that he hated God, but he was just forgetting God. And when you start forgetting God because you can't pray anymore because you've got to go to work so early. You can't give anymore because you've got to buy this and you've got to do this. All of a sudden, all these divisions start coming into us and we start falling. And sometimes we don't even know it. Let us be aware because James chapter 1 verse 8 says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You know, when Lori and I got married, we had this, she put, she put some unrealistic expectations on me, all right? When we got married, we had the traditional wedding. It was in this white, you know, white church with pews and, and white columns outside, and, and, and we had the tuxedos and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, and we did everything that a traditional wedding, we even had two ministers marry us. We are more married than many of you are, all right? We had two ministers up there. Even Tim Logan, our, our media pastor, was there so he could witness we were married. He sang at the wedding. It was it was memorable day. But she has these unrealistic expectations since day one. I don't know about your wife, but guys, she actually wanted me only to be with her from that point forward. Isn't that crazy? She actually wanted me to set myself aside and to only love her. Now, in the in the sea of women out there, how can I do that? Now, you know I'm being facetious, hopefully. We accept that level of jealousy in a marriage. You're only for me and I'm only for you, and that's all it is until death do us do part. That's what we say at the altar. We make that commitment. We expect that level of jealousy, that, that level. You know what? God is no different. God is a very jealous God and He wants absolute undivided loyalties. And if there's anything, I don't care if it's a foreign wife, that will turn our hearts away, fix it. 
If my house mortgage is turning my heart away, fix it. If my relationships are turning, fix it. If the job is turning my heart away, fix it. He does not want divided loyalties. That's exactly what happened because forgetfulness slips in and we begin to turn away. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says this, Lord searches all the earth for people who have given themselves completely to Him. He wants to make them strong. I love that verse. God is looking throughout Northwest Arkansas today for men and women who are absolutely undivided in their loyalty to Him so that He can bless them with His strength, with His power. He wants undivided People, people who have not turned aside. Because you see what's happening. First of all, Solomon, he begins to just ignore the directional roadmaps of God into relationships. Because God has them out there. It's very clear. 400 years prior to his ever stepping into the throne, God had already given guidelines for living in relationships. But he enters into that relationship and he emotionally begins to attach himself to these women. He clings to them, it says there. He clings to them and he emotionally is engaged in. And now all of a sudden he's not thinking with his head. He's now thinking with his emotions. And then he goes in a little bit further and he begins to have these divided loyalties. His wives begin to turn his heart away in what he spent 20 years building the most beautiful house of worship ever built for God. Certainly the most expensive one. Yet the second half of his reign... He spends building houses for idols. Which leads me to number four. You end up surrendering your convictions. Everything becomes gray and mushy and muddled. You read in verse four, it says, For Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. That was the warning, and it happened. Even wise King Solomon, after other gods, the word turned away and the in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, says that he was seduced by his wives. Holy, true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of his father, David. And for Solomon went after the Asherah goddess and the Sidians and Milcom and the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. He did not wholly follow God. He began to follow after the other gods. Where did Solomon go wrong? I heard this statement at last year's Global Leadership Summit, and I think it says it well. When we begin to fall is this. It's in the moment of maybe. It's in the moment of maybe that we begin to go, maybe I can get by with it. Maybe I won't be found out. Maybe God really didn't mean that. The moment of maybe. Has anybody noticed this right up here? Raise your hand. Do you know what it is? Does anybody like kisses? Here you go. All right. Ushers, would you come? This is not fair to give one person a kiss and not everybody. You can go home and tell the preacher kissed you today, okay? 
Um, let's pass out kisses to everyone. Let me tell you about Hershey Kisses. All right, you can see this little crazy contraption I have on my leg. For about two months, I have been dealing with ankle issues and ankle problems. And um, with these ankle issues, I, I've tried everything but an African witch doctor uh, to get it fixed. And I would get a little bit of relief, and then it would come back, a little bit of relief, and it would come back, and it just became an agonizing process. And so the... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a study break in, in Dallas and studying for messages for the coming year, and, and actually a friend of a friend, it was David Mills, who knew a doctor there, who recommended a great foot and ankle doctor there, and recommended that I go see this foot and ankle doctor because he's really good. This was right before he gave me a cortisone shot that got me through a couple more, uh, another month. And so whenever the pain came back, and I said, okay, I'm going to go see this doctor when I'm in Dallas, and so... I went and saw him. He says, great. He says, what you have is this, this. Basically, you have bone on bone. Every time you run, every time you jump, it's like seven times your weight coming down bone on bone. So that's why you're in such pain. So he said, you need to have an operation. We need to clean it out. You've got a lot of scar tissue, too many sprains, too many this. We need to clean it out, stimulate growth to the, to the bone, and, and you need to stay off of it for a month. So I, and I can do your surgery tomorrow. Perfect. And get this, my younger brother is driving, a missionary in Mexico, is driving through Texas the next day. So I was going to go ahead and come back to Arkansas. He was going to drive me back. It, all the stars of the universe were lining up. All right, so the doctor gives me my pre-op instructions, tells me to go home, and after 8 in the morning, because it's an afternoon surgery, after 8 in the morning, don't eat anything. So I calculated. I had my complex carbohydrates in my oatmeal. I was going to be uh, not be hungry all day long. And, and I had my coffee. And at 8 o'clock, I drank my last sip and ate my last uh, scoop of, uh, of oatmeal. And I was ready to go for the day. And so I intently poured myself into studying and, and focusing on that and made great progress. It was a great, successful morning. But that day, I knew I'd be coming back in a lot of pain, couldn't move around. So I had stocked up because nobody wants to go hungry, all right? And God forbid that I'd miss a day of food. So I stocked up right beside my bed beef jerky, all these nuts and different things that I could eat so that whenever I got back, I could eat at that point. And I looked at them all day long. And every time, no. I'll tell you what, beef jerky goes from beef jerky to filet mignon over the course of a few hours. So I'm looking at this filet mignon ready to dive into it. But I'm saying, no, I'm very disciplined, very focused. On my way to the hospital to have my surgery, I go in and I see one of my professors just for a very quick visit. He steps in, he steps out, I'm sitting there in the office, I turn around, and lo and behold, there's a Hershey's Kiss right in front of me. The most involuntary act of my day, I reach down and I open up this already been melted, you know what a Hershey Kiss looks like when it's been melted and dries back, I mean it's not even good, Okay? I open it up and I eat it like two hours before my surgery. And so I eat this Hershey Kiss and it's going down my esophagus at that point. I go, <gasps> I thought, oh, it's only a Hershey's Kiss. It's only a Hershey's Kiss. So I go on to the hospital. I even got out and told my brother, I said, what did I do? I just ate a Hershey's Kiss. Ah, it's just a Hershey's Kiss. Don't worry about it. Let's go on. So we went on to the hospital, and I go in there. They're giving me an EKG. They're getting ready to put me to sleep. And the nurse asked me this one silly, stupid question. Have you had anything to eat since 8 this morning? 
I said, you wouldn't believe it with a big smile on my face. I had Hershey's kiss. I said, but it was two hours ago. And the doctor, excuse me, the nurse goes blank. Uh, well, we're going to have to talk to the anesthesiologist about this. I said, well, it was just one. I didn't eat a bunch. I'm sorry, you know, whatever. And the anesthesiologist comes in just a matter of fact as anything and says, you might as well have eaten the whole bag. He says, you're not having surgery today. I could not believe it. Listen, you don't know how upset I was. Mad at myself. Mad, I, I was so upset they had to lay me back on the gurney and the doctor asked me if I needed some medicine. That's how upset I was. I was crying like a baby. So upset. Everything was in line for this surgery. And I can't even go into all the whole details about how it happened and didn't happen. It happened. It ended up coming back and happened. But I can tell you this, and I've got receipts to back it up. Right now, I am counting at $275 because I had to go back down for the surgery another night, another day, another, another, another. Had to go back down, and I'm at $275 for one Hershey kiss. And what I want to say is this. You can be like Solomon, and you can live a very good life. And you can live a very good day. But listen. If you go unconscious, if you drop down your guard, you can be sucked in and you can fall as quick as anyone. Father God, I pray right now that in this place you will help us to see any unloyal part of us, any part of us that is not fully, wholly given to you, that we would, Lord, surrender it back without hesitation. In Jesus' name we pray.